if you have a scarcity mindset, you can't become. If you don't believe that you can become, you don't become. If you have few resources, but you believe, then you can become. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. This week, we are going to be talking about the scarcity mindset, and it's just Jonathan and I. And in some of our recent interviews, this topic came up, and I really wanted to explore a little bit more this topic with Jonathan because scarcity mindset is not something that I'm really very familiar with, but I feel like it's something a lot of people suffer from. So I was struck in our conversation with uh, Liza Peterson how you both mentioned that you spent a lot of your life in a scarcity mindset. So can you tell me what does that feel like and where do you think it comes from? You know, what does it feel like? <laughs> it feels like you, you're never going to have enough or you'll never, you'll, you, you'll never have, right? And I think it, you know, it comes from this, how you were raised or what, what you brought up with. Like we don't have in the US, we don't have a very robust social infrastructure. So if, if you have, if you're raised in poverty or if you're raised with, you know, in a poor family or a poor area, that's what you experience. And so you think that that's normal and you, uh, you know, there's a lot of research on what that does to the brain and how this sort of level sets your expectations and you, you always want, and, you know, I'm, I'm saying I was raised poor. And then 50 years later, I turned 51 this year in like a month and it's still there. And I'm a different person entirely. Like I have way more means than I had. And it's only been the last, I mean, last night I was, I was sitting sit with my wife and, and I was like, you know what? I'm, I think we're going to be okay. Right. And then that'll go away. And I'll be reminded by the fact that what you have is not, you're not guaranteed to keep it. And if you don't get to keep it, then what comes next, right? That's the, do I, do I have to work hard again? Because, you know, you and I have had this conversation where, you know, I was driven, I was driven by lack to create something. And in, in the creation of something, I got to enough and I got to far more than enough. I have plenty. Like I uh, was so grateful for everything. And in the back of my head, there's still a little boy who doesn't get what he wants and whenever I don't get what I want, whether it's something, you know, conversation with my wife or, you know, something about, you know, my, one of my kids' lives, whenever I don't get what I want, I, it all comes crashing. Like, it, I, I do see that things are precarious. You know, I, I know where I can end up. I know where I can go. And so that scarcity is something that holds on to you. And in that conversation you mentioned with Lisa, she actually says that she has developed beyond that. You know, she has done the inner work to understand that she's passed that potential loss. I don't believe that. I don't believe in the US we are ever past that. And I I see families who implode. Like I have a I've got a really close friend in New York who's going through a divorce right now. And neither of them is going to have anywhere close to the life that they had before after the divorce. So it's, you know, there are 
there are things that can happen to you in your life. Uh, and, and, you know, my sister-in-law, sh she lost my brother and that he was the primary breadwinner. If that happens in my household, same thing happens. Like it's, there are things that happen and there, there isn't necessarily a way to maintain your status or your success or your sense of enough. And so because there's no way to maintain it, and because I know there's no way to maintain it, and there's no guarantee, the mindset always creeps up in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. But see, now you said something very interesting just at the end there. And, and you know, I, I had a sense that I wanted to pull on this at the beginning of the question, but towards the end, like you mentioned the word status. And I find that like very kind of telling in a kind of way, because when you talk about poverty and you, you know, you mentioned how growing up in poverty is a certain kind of experience. And, you know, I think us in the West, for sure, you know, our experience of what lack might be is perhaps more positional than it is actual real physical lack. And I mean, physical lack is something that's not comparative and maybe correct me. Right. But like, let's say, you know, somebody who's growing up poor in the U S is not the same thing as growing up poor in Bangladesh. Of course not. No, yeah. you know what I mean? And so it's, it's this kind of like a, a positional kind of a status poverty. And I wonder if you think that's because, you know, maybe the social levels are just very stretched. Like, you know, my comparison obviously is Canada where I feel like our you know, social hierarchy is just, or the financial distribution is just much narrower because we have like, you know, redistribu redistributive systems and how that healthcare and education is basically taken care of means that you can only fall so far. I mean, people who live in poverty here still can get the same healthcare as me, in fact, or as anybody who has money. And like, that's a, you know, a bone of contention for Canadians because a lot of us feel like we're all, you know, getting poverty line healthcare, but it, but the point is everybody it's equal access for everyone. Right. And with education, it's the same thing all the way up through university, like in which the government will pay for the same universities for people who don't have the funds. And so the whole thing is just kind of, you know, squashed. So, I mean, I don't know, do you think that it's an, an actual question of real lack, or do you think it's a positional kind of a feeling like a shame oh. that you get shame associated to being poor somehow or, or lack? I, I, I think it's both. I mean, I, I do think there is actual lack in the United States as well. I mean, is it the, is it the same lack as Bangladesh? And I, I, I don't know what lack in Bangladesh looks like. So, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, I, I, you know, I don't know how bad it is, but there is actual lack. And, and when I was growing up, I, I recall two things very, very clearly. So I, my, when I was 12 years old, I worked in a warehouse and in the warehouse I worked in was Allied Van Lines, Northwestern Warehouse in Rapid City, South Dakota. And what Allied Van Lines, one of the things they did in that warehouse is they stored the government food program foods. And so you could get a, I think it was a five gallon thing of uh, peanut butter, like a big metal tin with the peel off metal cap, right? Not a, this is not fresh like peanut butter. And, and there was this massive, there were these massive, you know, pallets of blocks, a 10, 15 pound blocks of cheese. And the warehouse was filled with this kind of stuff, you know, massive cans of pickles and just, just lots and lots of this stuff. And so there, there, those went somewhere. There were families that relied upon those things for food in the United States, in Rapid City, when I was growing up. And that's just that's just one warehouse uh, in the country, in one very small town. I think, I think Rapid City had 40,000 people in it when I was in school there. And in Rapid, there were two sides of, two sides of the town, right? There was, a, there was a wealthier side of town. Houses were nicer, schools were better. There wasn't a corporal punishment in the schools. Uh, on the other side of town, 
there's a larger Native American population. There was more there was corporal punishment in schools. Um, there was much more poverty. The, the the houses were smaller. Life expectancies were lower. I mean, there's there was a line in the middle of the town, and there was a there was two sides of the tracks. And I, I think I think that story, you know, in the John Denver songs, you know, for, you know, circa thirty years ago, that story comes out of real experience of lack. Again, I don't know if it compares well to other countries, you know, third world countries, it probably doesn't, not the same kind of lack, but relative lack mm -hmm. within our culture, absolutely. And I think we see that in inequality numbers today as well. And then you layer on top of that, this shame thing. And so that was for me, just huge when I was a kid, because I was so embarrassed by my, my parents' vehicles. Literally, my dad's car the back seat of the car the doors the back doors of the car were held closed by a rope that tied the two doors between the two door handles and you'd climb in the you climb in a window and you'd you'd like slide in down underneath this rope because you couldn't remove the rope because you remove the rope you got to retie it big pain in the ass right so so i was so embarrassed by by the cars and and the vacations were different you know we went camping everyone else got on a plane and flew somewhere the shoes. I was a big soccer player. I bought plastic, literally plastic shoes from Payless Shoe Source for $9. Whereas my buddies were wearing Copa Mundio, you know, Adidas Copas, and they're fantastic, you know, kangaroo leather, soft, supple. My friends had new skis every year. I went to a ski swap and got 10 year old skis and skied on those. I was very aware of shame, of a sense of being less than. And so the combination of those two, I think, are what makes up my scarcity mindset. And I can't imagine it's that much difference, different between myself and other folks that were raised in a similar scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and I mean, what contributing factors do you think? Because obviously there's within communities, right? Like you have, you know, uh, positionally the people you know, your neighborhood. And if we just talk about like the broader culture a little bit, because I think like what's happening now, especially with, you know, social media, like our referent, like the, the, our reference bank of things that we see is distorted in the sense that like, we're, you know, bombarded a lot with higher socioeconomic possibilities and that mm. it's easy from there to read scarcity when, you know, you, if you look at what you have, it's totally fine. So my question is, do you think you know, something about the culture is projecting that scarcity mindset onto, you know, you, I guess. Yeah. Without denying that actual scarcity exists, I, I think there is actual scarcity. And I think that the way media represents inequality, you know, highlights it, enhances it. You know, if we thinking about this, you know, I think that there's a there's a there's a quote from Thomas Hobbes. Uh, who is like a, you know, I think a 16th, 17th century philosopher, right? And he talks about sort of the natural state of man before society. And he, the way he phrases it is it was something like, the sol you know, the, the, the solitary life of man is, is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. It's nasty, right? brutish, and short. That's nasty, quote, brutish, yeah. and short. Solitary, yeah. poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And that's, you know, no, no letters, no society. Every man for himself, you know, or every man's family for themselves, whatever you want to call it. And 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 man is that's intentional usage, right? Because uh, that's the way it was, 1600s, 1700s. But you know, 150 years ago, 
things like indoor plumbing and running water and an eight hour work day, these are luxuries, right? Now, today we look at these things and go, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's we're blase. Yeah, we're blase it's, about them. Yeah. So, so normal. Yeah. It's so yeah. normal. But 150 years ago, it was, it was, that was, that was luxury. That was, wow, you are wealthy if you had these kinds of things. And you have to remember, most people worked in mills and mines and factories and docks, and they worked really, really, really hard. And life expectancy was 40 years lower than it was today. And average height was six, six inches less than it is now, which sort of speaks to diet and the availability of protein across, across broad swaths of the people. Average education was eight years less than it is today. You know, I think it was, I think the average education in like in 1870 was like five and a half years of education. That's primary school, right? That's through seventh grade. Like that's all it is. College was not really a thing, right? No one, no one did that 150 years ago or very few people did it 150 years ago. We forget the enormous amount of progress we've made generally. And then we highlight that with social media today. And we say, well, this person who is looking at stuff on their cell phone doesn't, you know, has so much less than everyone else. And I'm just like, that's, it's kind of ridiculous, right? So it's, I, I think there is real social inequality in the US for sure. I know it exists. I think I came out of it and people have it worse than me, you know, for sure. But the stigma and the psychology is highlighted by a lot of the way we talk about it today. The reality is everyone alive in the US and Canada today is incredibly lucky. You know, we would all prefer being here than anywhere 150 years ago. You could be the wealthiest person in the on the planet 150 years ago, and you did not have the lifestyle that people that are poor today have. And that's so we, we have to we have to have, be grateful and we have to understand that. And we have to honor the fact that there is a difference. And that difference, the more we highlight the difference and not and 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 back away from the process of how we get people from the bottom to the top. You know, for my money, I would much rather talk about how do we get there? How do we become? How do we help people in the, at the bottom decile grow from there? Because they are actually becoming, you know, when you look at, you can look at a Forbes list of the top 400 wealthiest people. And it's, it's a pretty good smattering. I think 70, 70% of the Forbes 400 built their own wealth. This generation, like it's not the idea of inequality that's permanent is kind of disproven by the fact that 70% of the wealthiest people built their stuff. Okay. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, let's, what let's is this? What is this? Yeah. Well, the, well, so this is why, you know, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and we're, well, let's go straight to Piketty, right? Yeah. So, you know, we, we've talked off camera about uh, how I just, uh, you know, I will not claim to have read all of it, but I've read three quarters of the book. So I got into like a lot of that, you know, the economic data at the end. Sure. Um, and, you know, one of the points that he makes is, or one of his interpretations from the data that he collected is that right now we are beginning to approach levels of inequality not seen since the 1900s in the West. And that the middle of the century was a bit of a blip. And his interpretation of that is that it has to do with the fact that we went through very rapid population growth um, and that we went through very rapid economic growth and that that was a product of the second world war and the shocks that came afterwards and the massive destruction and this and that. And, you know, my question is, and, and I think maybe you, you kind of partially answered it, but maybe you can like lay it out for us more clearly is that is the feeling of scarcity really an inequality problem? Is it a problem of meritocracy? Because I think Piketty's point is that as wealth becomes ever more concentrated at the top, meritocracy is like 
not as realistic as it was for even our generation, right? Like if, if we grew up in the eighties, like that was a time at which the social elevator was working better than it is in 2020. So. I, I think that there's a, and you know this already, there, there's an enormous amount of disagreement on Piketty and other economists. There's an enormous amount of disagreement. And I don't, I don't pretend to know all the data. I don't pretend to know. So when it comes to global thinking about scarcity and meritocracy, it's it's harder for me to put, to say, you know, Piketty's right and, and the rest of the economists are wrong or vice versa. That I wouldn't say that. What I get worried about in my day-to-day is that the conversation around wealth and the conversation around inequality, because we speak of it as the only way that people at the bottom are ever going to you know, be able to climb up the ladder is if we change society. What that means is people have the option of not taking responsibility and taking the steps that will benefit themselves and then and waiting for us to fix society. And that I think the problem is we cannot wait to fix society. Society will never be fixed. Society is far more <laughs> Hobbesian, right? Short of our collective, you know, deciding that we're going to give it away, deciding that we're going to make it equal for everybody. Short of that, it's solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, right? It's it's difficult. It's a challenge. And we're not, I don't imagine us, you know, can we move slightly in the direction of, yeah, but I don't see that we're going to, we're going to suddenly, you know, disinvest in what we believe in as meritocracy. And I know that we've interviewed a lot of people that sort of poo-poo meritocracy and say it's not it's not real and it doesn't happen. And 70% of the Fortune 400 built something this generation. So they're wealthy as can be, right? You know, Elon Musk, like I'm not a huge fan of the man, but you have to say, okay, Tesla, you know, SpaceX, boring company, Twitter, you, you have to say, he's putting stuff out into the world. He's creating stuff. He's making stuff happen. Is he relying on government you know, uh, grants and, and loans sometimes? Yes. Is he relying on other capital sources sometimes? Absolutely. Um, but he has innovative ideas and he puts those ideas into practice and he's created wealth for thousands of other people while at the same time growing his own wealth uh, and providing communication and, you know, satellite communication for, for Ukraine in this whole conflict. And, and he's, do, he's done a lot of things. You're like, you know, I drive a Tesla and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the man. I don't own the stock, but I drive a Tesla. So I think it's, you know, he deserves in some way his wealth. Um, <laughs> well, now, Jonathan, this now, now, we're, now, I mean, we're going down like kind of an interesting road. Um, I actually just read an article in the Economist this morning about the, the uh, political power that Elon Musk has basically by having done all these things, right? And like economically, like, you know, as a businessman, you can take your hat off. But we live like in a reality where he gets to decide that Ukraine gets satellite coverage, right? Or he gets to decide like what's ha- what happens to Twitter sure. and like the political cloud of that. So this, I mean, I think that's a whole kind of a whole kind of other debate, but no, the, the the question is, is does he deserve the wealth that he has? I mean, that's that that that's what yeah. we're answering right here. Is is meritocracy? Does Bill Gates deserve what he has? Does does Warren Buffett deserve what he has? And I, I don't think it's a question of deserve. Like I don't think that at all. I think it's is it too much? Is it necessary? No. But can we? How do we justify saying if you have a billion dollars, 
every penny more than that, you should just donate to the cause. Like, how do we justify that? No, I, Jonathan, I, but I, to me, I think that's, again, at the risk of the, you know, the fish not being aware of the water here, right? And like, I would take when, you know, you have a Hobbesian analysis, like, it's not surprising that you have a Hobbesian analysis, in my opinion, living in the United States. I think if you were living in Sweden, it might be a little bit more difficult to have this Hobbesian analysis, because I feel like, you know, I live in, in the most socialist province in Canada. And I'll tell you, it's a bit hard to have a Hobbesian analysis here, because the analysis is more like, well, you know, maybe handouts are not the best thing because maybe it creates like uh, false incentives and then people are not encouraged to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which might be a good thing. But I don't think, you know, that uh, interpretation that uh, regulation or society can't do anything to smooth out the ripples. I, I don't think that's really reflective of the different models in the West. You know, I think that's more of a comment on the fact that like the US is now in that state and that like there have been choices to not have regulation that would iron that out. And you that's mean, a choice. By, by regulation, you mean redistribution, right? Yeah. I mean, all, yeah. all different kinds of things like redis yep. redistribution and, and even, you know, when you look at like the way the financial system has been created, right? Like, it's not like all of a sudden we have all these, you know, billionaires, you're this, the, the, the top 0.01%, like the fact that that wealth accrued in that specific way, like, yes, those people had great innovations, but 200 years ago, it was, or 400 years ago, it was the monarchs who had an incredible amount of wealth. It was not the business people. Right. And so we're in a system that right. like- So, so is, that, is, that merit, is that merit meritocratic? Meritocratic. I mean, merit, like, or I less. just, I think, I mean, maybe it's more meritocratic today, but you can't, it's the fish not being aware of the water because something allows all of those proceeds to go to the very top. And, you know, we had, um, I think it was Adam Frank that we had on who talks about Darwin economics, right? That it's, yeah. you know, the, 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 in this globalized world, you used to be able to have in every city, somebody who made, I say, you know, n'importe quoi, but like, no, whatever, like $2 million. Right. But like now, because the whole world is integrated, now you have Jeff Bezos, who's like, you know, put all of the retail stores out of business. And now he's the one collecting all that money. And so, you know, that's a, a fish in water that is allowing certain things to happen. And like, then do we, you know, regulate it away? Is it fair? Is it meritocratic? And, you know, I don't think the debate is necessarily so much on Elon Musk, but I think the debate is what about their kids? And, oh, of what, course. Do we, and of course. what do we do? Like, are we in a, in a, in a moment, this is Piketty's point. Are we in a moment where there's a new aristocracy being born that working so, your way up is ridiculous because with work, you will never get there. And this was like, you know, whatever he cites a book where someone was talking about, uh, you know, a, a, someone's Butler. And it was like completely preposterous to him that he should ever go and work because he should just try to find a rich woman to marry. And then, then that's the answer to that question. Right. Like, <laughs> So, the, I mean, there's, there's, so one of the arguments about Piketty is he talks about, what is it? I think it's R is greater than G, like the return on capital is greater than the, than the rate of growth. Right. And in the last to totally separate topic, you know, I, I look at this, this idea of the wealth gap, the, the, the black white wealth gap. And there is, there was a paper that was published, I think two days ago, three days ago that, that tracked it back to like 1820 or 1870 or something like that. And, and the decline in the gap was precipitous from whatever the beginning of the study is, 1820, 1850, something like that, to about 1940. I mean, it was straight down. Uh, it was like the decline in the inequality or the difference in the gap was, was very, very tremendous. And between that day and today, it's just a slow decline. 
So there's some time in the 40s and the 50s where the actually it's probably more like the 60s, like 40s after World War II was big, um, uh, and then and then it and then the decline continued. Another lots of things happening, right? So in the maybe early late 70s, early 80s, doctors doctors started earning more and more and more and more. They got to be, there got to be specializations and you've got to be a brain surgeon. You got to, to be a, you know, cardiothoracic surgeon. You got, so if you, if you did all this education, this, you, you could actually increase your income relative to the rest of the world in a way that was never seen before 1980. It was never, it, it, it wasn't business people that made all the money, right? It was, and today you think about, think about the people that make the money today are business people, are investors. And so there is more money going to capital today because, and there's no question about that. I, 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 there's no question about it. The question I have is, is it one, is it unreasonable? And I think we can both agree that there is an unreasonable amount of money going to capital today. Um, I'm not disagreeing with that. Is it good or bad? I think we can get into a conversation about, is that good or bad for the world? And I think in some ways it's good and in some ways it's bad. And I think that if you have someone on one side of that argument, they're always going to say, no, 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 it's hundred percent good or hundred percent bad. And I just think that's ridiculous. I think that's, yeah. you know, it is partially because Elon Musk is playing a different game that he builds a new thing and builds a new thing and builds a new thing and builds a new thing. And it is because he is playing a different game that he enjoys the and does he really enjoy? Does it make a difference to him to start a company, found a company, and make another forty billion dollars? Does it, does that affect him in any way? Really? No, but I think Jonathan, like, look, we're not in Elon Musk's head, and I think, like, you know, when you at a certain point, I think money becomes irrelevant. Like, I think the metrics become something else, or like money right. becomes a metric of success. Like, you know, how much money you make, or then how much political influence you're able to have, or how much you're able to define what the world becomes, like beyond a certain thing. But I think when we're talking about, you know, uh, every man, right, which I think is more about right. where our conversation is, and like, what's the state of meritocracy, and then, you know, what happens with this winner take all thing. And and I think in a way, maybe Elon Musk is, or or you know, Jeff Bezos are like these people who who have for argument's sake invented something are maybe not the best example of like when Piketty talks about capital, like I think he's talking a lot about, you know, the finance industry and potentially like the rentier, right? So like, you know, someone who's in real estate and who has accumulated this wealth and then buy something and collects rents, like, and that the more inactive returns go back to capital, the more we're concentrating wealth and we're not actually generating anything. And I think, you know, I don't want to make, make this whole episode about Piketty, but like, I think that that's his point is that if you have the returns going to capital, like it's not necessarily, you know, is capital a way to launch productive ideas because that's ultimately propelling a real kind of growth. Like that's main street in a way. So I mean, not th wall street. Th think about meritocracy for, I mean, the, the, the common man, right? The, the every, the every man, right? I think that the reality is you can open a plumbing franchise and you can make hundreds of thousands of dollars per year running a plumbing franchise. And, and I, why do I say plumbing franchise? One, yeah. plumbing yeah. Is, is disrespected in the United States. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a low class, whatever job, which is BS. I don't, you know, and, well, I respect the plumber. Jonathan, I, I respect, I, I respect plumber. plumbers. Totally. I mean, I totally <laughs> they've saved, they've saved my bacon a number of times. But but it's it's um, and then and then the second thing I say franchise because you don't have to know how to do anything right in a franchise they teach you everything like 
from soup to nuts, beginning to end. They show you how to do it, how to market it, how to do the work, how to find the clients. They market for you. They do so. Franchises are not, are, are are a great opportunity for people. It requires a little bit of capital, not a lot of capital, but a little bit of capital. And you can usually you can borrow that capital because most lenders go, oh yeah, you're starting a, a Mr. Root or plumbing franchise. Oh yeah, yeah, we know that those work. We're gonna we're gonna loan you the money to do it. So meritocracy is possible for everyone. And this is this is my problem with the conversation because if we always talk about how it's unfair and the society is not working for everybody, then people lose lose the thread that it's possible. And it is possible. I think I am an example of it being possible. I can name a dozen of my clients who are also, and not they don't look like me. And I, the, the first person, someone's in this first thing people are gonna say is, well, Jonathan, you've had it really good because you're, you know, you're white and male uh, and you're six foot five, right? So, so yes, I those are all wonderful things. But I have female clients that have just knocked the cover off the ball. I have, you know, clients from India that have knocked the cover off the ball. I've got black clients that have knocked the cover off the ball. And I've got, you know, I I just know people that are very successful and they deserve the success because I know the work that they put in. Like I've watched people do it of all stripes. And the conversation about the conversation that we have around success or the or the inequality that exists, I think it demotivates people. Mm-hmm. And so my I can't solve the big, I can't solve the big picture. I can solve the inequality issue for an individual who feels they deserve more and can get to more. I can solve for that. I know how to work with that person and help them become. Um, and so I get really excited when that opportunity comes. I don't know how to solve the big stuff. And I, yeah. and, and frankly, the argument bores me. Like it, I'm sick of the argument never freaking changes. It doesn't change. It's the same stuff we had in the forties, the same stuff in the twenties, same stuff they've been talking about 1870s is it's unfair. And we may be at a point where we have this maximum inequality. That's ridiculous. I shouldn't say maximum. We have maximum relative to history inequality. It's going to get more unequal. I'm, I'm going to guess. And maybe that's bad, but maybe that's, part of everyone getting better. Maybe that's maybe that's a function of it getting better for everyone. And the difference is, or the challenge is, and I don't know, I don't know the answers to all these questions, but the, the issue is how we talk about it. Yeah. I mean, Jonathan, like I, I want to just, you know, move this back to the idea of scarcity mindset. So I've got yes. one more question to just kind of wrap yeah. us up there, but, you know, I want to just, uh, you know, maybe argue a little bit with you about the fact of, of, you know, the steepness of, the inequality, right? Because I think if you look at like hierarchies in society, right? Like you can have a hierarchy that's like, like this very flat, or you can have a hierarchy that's very steep. And like, you know, again, this is Piketty's point. One of his points that's buried, you know, far in. And I think, you know, if I think of the Mark Blythe interview, I think this is his point also with angrynomics is that when you get to a point where the pyramid is too steep, it ends up in political turmoil because the people who are at the bottom and feel they're not getting a fair shake, then want to turn the system on its head. And this is basically, you know, the arguments I've heard is this is what happened in the second world, well, the first world war, which then turned into the second world war, you know, in the Soviet union, when there was a, well, when it became the Soviet union, right, led to the Russian revolution or like, you know, France just before the French revolution, like that at, at each of those inflection points, you see like incredible levels of inequality with pain and suffering at the bottom. And then that turns into, you know, regime change and and Ray Dalio's turning upside down of everything, you know? So I think, is it a transition point to something better? Well, maybe if we go through a huge political turmoil and, and I don't, I don't know that that's what we're arguing for, 
but let's put a pin in that for another day and let's bring it back to, you know, can we bridge the gap somehow between meritocracy and scarcity mindset? Like, what do you think the relationship between those two things are? Like, does having a scarcity mindset propel you to want to succeed? Is it a barrier? Is it this like thing where you're carrying the shame with you, no matter how much you succeed? Like, do you see that those things are two independent variables or do they kind of fit together somehow? Well, it's, I mean, in a way, having a scarcity mindset, it's, that's, that's an interesting question because if you have a scarcity mindset, I think tech, I think technically the scarcity mindset keeps you from, you know, you're, you're terrified of, of, of losing. So you don't, you don't make the steps. You don't, you don't pursue your own success because your mindset doesn't allow it. Even if you saw it, you couldn't see it. You know what I mean? I think that's sort of a, a technical aspect of it. For me, it was not having that drove me. I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking back. And so I had a scarcity mindset, but no, that's the, that's the difference. I think that's what we're talking about here. I didn't have a scarcity mindset. I had scarcity, right? So my parents always told me, you know, Jonathan, you can be whatever you want to be. You can become whatever you want to become. You know, we believe in you. So that was always my message growing up. We did not have, like my, my dad was the first it was the only one of his siblings that went to college. So, and that's, you know, that's his mom actually went to college, but he was the only one of his siblings that went to college. And he grew up very, 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 very poor. Like I, how I grew up was nothing compared to how he grew up. And so he went a long ways towards benefiting the family. And, and so I was raised with, without much, but with belief that I could become. And I think that is a really, really important thing. My fear of, of scarcity isn't so much a mindset that says it's, you can't become, it's, if you're not careful, it can all go away. Mm-hmm. It's fear. It's fear. It's right? fear. And so I think, I, yeah. I think that this, if you have a scarcity mindset, you can't become, if you don't believe that you can become, you don't become. If you have few resources, but you believe, then you can become. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that this is the fundamental problem that I have with the discussion, with the argument, because the fact that we talk about it in terms of structural problems forces the belief that you can't overcome those structural problems or forces the wrong words, too powerful a word. It suggests that, that people cannot overcome their circumstances. And I don't believe that that's true. I think that people can overcome their circumstances. But the prerequisite to overcoming your circumstances is that you you believe that you can overcome your circumstances. And if you don't believe, you won't, right? Henry Ford, you argue for your limitations and sure enough, they're yours. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think... I think ultimately that's true, but I also, you know, and let's just, let's end with this last question. Cause we do actually have to wrap, wrap this episode up, but like, you know, in the, in the conversation with Lisa, and I think, you know, both of you, what's really struck me in that interview is that it seems like both of you have been for a long time. And in your case still are plagued by this, right? Yeah. Like plagued by this fear of precarity or fear that, yeah. you know, if I don't do the right thing, it can all be swept away. And, you know, not so much as a barrier to success because obviously you've made it to where you are, but the fact that like you're, you know, you're, you're living with this imprint of fear and like, 
yeah, I don't know if there's a question in there, but, but that, that, that was the, that was the, the common experience that I kind of wanted to try to pull out of you guys, because I just find it very interesting. And it's not an experience that's like, I don't relate to that experience, you know? Yeah. And I, and, and I think that, I think when you talk about the steep versus the, the, the more shallow, I think that that's, there would be a huge advantage, I think, to having a, 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 a greater social infrastructure, as long as what came along with that was, you know, and I think this is a lot of the arguments against Piketty is talk about things like education and, and, and this is like, there's also, there's formal education, like what you learn, the math, the science, all that kind of stuff. So there's also the, the, what does it mean to be a citizen education? And what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be part of a community? What does it mean to be part of a culture? What is your responsibility as a citizen? What is your responsibility as a part of this culture, as part of this community? And if, if, if the conversation is always about how do I get more, how do I get more, how do I get more, it creates this. If the conversation becomes more about how do we create more, how do we make it better for everybody? How do we, how do we improve well-being? I think that, I think you actually can have a flatter wealth curve. I, I know, you yeah. know, a flatter wealth amount, less inequality, and it's going to be, you're going to have better psychology, better well-being yeah. for yeah. everyone at the top yeah. and the bottom. Right. And, yeah. I, and I, yeah. so I agree with that. I just don't know how to, I, I, I think that we can't, we don't know, had the U.S. never occurred, like you, you can't prove a negative, like had the U.S. never occurred, we don't know if we would have the global wealth that we have. So what do we give up? And this is the thing we can't, there's no analysis for this. What would we have to give up in order to have a U.S. that has more equality? And if somebody says you don't have to give up anything, they're lying. Of course, you have to give up something. There's a trade-off for everything. We're here with this much wealth because of something. And so what are those things? Are I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no. And Jonathan, like, I think that's a very, I, you know what? I wish like that's such a, a great point. I don't think I've ever heard anyone make that point. And I think you have to be right. Like you have to be right. And it's not just about wealth. It's about like creativity yeah. And innovation and all of those things that like, you know, okay, don't we love to sit here in our Nordic countries and talk about our social infrastructure, but like at the same time, it's not us pushing, pushing the package, right? It's not Sweden. Yeah. It's not Canada. It's not like we're the ones who are driving world innovation. It's the most unequal Western country in the world that happens to be driving it. So, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I think this might be a good place to end off, but I like, I think that's definitely food for thought for me and, 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 you know, something to stick into this argument anytime there's something else. We're like, okay, so what is the trade-off? Like, we don't know. And when you tinker with these large scale systems, I think that's part of the problem is everyone likes to play armchair economists, but like, ultimately we're executing experiments in real time. And we don't know what the answer is. We, we right. watch different models evolve in different ways and it creates different results, but like, you know, you, yeah, I think it's a good, a good point. Yep. Thank you. All right. Well, hopefully you've uh, enjoyed this conversation and hopefully we have not gone off in too many different directions. <laughs> um, and you can feel free, subscribe, share this, please leave us comments. This was a very interesting topic for us. And if you guys have any questions or uh, you know any guests that you want us to request on the topic, we'll be happy to humor you. And thank you, Jonathan. I, I, you're welcome. I just want to say, be kind. Like this is a, this is a very, anyone that's listening to this and here's like the personal side of some of these stories and stuff, be kind. Like this is, this is stuff that's, uh, uh, it, it's currently, you know, heavy in the media and I'm just trying to be transparent and try to be open about this kind of stuff. Cause you know, I, I think that we can all be better off if we listen more. Yeah, Jonathan. And uh, thank you. I, I think that's really important. And I think it's, 
important also in like naming some of these things. And I think that's why like, you know, we kind of fumble around a little bit in the, in this interview, because like, we don't have the measure of this thing. And, you know, I heard this scarcity mindset thing come up in the interview with uh, Lisa and I'm like, okay, well, we need to like explore this because I don't, you know, I don't have an experience of it. Maybe we don't talk about it that much. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to have that and, and the personal experiences related to it come out so that we can understand more and, and deal with it. Yes. Thank you, Terry. Thanks.